It's been said that religion is like a blind man looking in a black room for a black cat that isn't there and finding it. Sam Harris, he didn't say that. This part he did say. We know enough at this moment to say that the God of Abraham is not only unworthy of the immensity of creation, he is unworthy even of man. Frederick Nietzsche, Christianity was from the beginning, essentially and fundamentally, life's nausea and disgust with life, merely concealed behind, masked by, dressed up as faith in another or better life. Richard Dawkins, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Christopher Hitchens, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him will believeth in anything. Hitchens 3, 16. We live in a challenging time, don't we? We live in a day where if you claim you're Christian, people assume you are anti-intellectual. They assume you can't think. We live in a day where our high school students are simply taught, if they're in the public school system, that God doesn't exist, that he's not even a possibility. Then you push that to secular college and university, and you multiply that manyfold. That is the day we are now in. That is where we are living. It's in the academy. It's in the job site. It's in our high schools. It's in our classrooms. And if you suggest God exists somewhere, people begin to call your competency into question. I mean, should you really even have this job? Now, if you don't think I'm telling you the truth, think about your life just for a moment. How freely do you share your faith with others? How freely when you're at work, if someone's going through a time of suffering, do you talk about the Lord? How freely with your neighbors do you bring him up in conversation or invite them over so that you can dialogue with them about Jesus? How often do you share who Christ is to you with others around you? And if you're not doing that, what's your greatest fear? Ostracism? What they think? Questions they may ask that you don't have an answer for? We live in an incredibly challenging day. A very dark day. But our God is the God of light. And as we share truth, he will bring light to those around us. We're often intimidated by the world, and yet the world is confused by him. The world is confused about him. That's why when you study other religions, sometimes he's named as a great prophet. That's why if you study cults, he's always a part of a cult, just not deity in the cult. He's not part of a triune God when you study cults. And yet listen to this. This is Time Magazine, Reynolds Price. This is November 28, 1999. As the world was turning to the year 2000, Time Magazine ran a number of series on the greatest invention in the last thousand years, right? The greatest, and then finally it ended with the most influential person in the last thousand years. Listen to what they wrote in Time Magazine. It should be on the screen. The memory of any stretch of years eventually resolves to a list of names. And one of the most useful ways of recalling the past two millennium 
is by listing the people who acquired great power. Muhammad, Catherine the Great, Marx, Gandhi, Hitler, Roosevelt, Stalin, Mao. They all quickly come to mind. There's no question that each of these figures changed the lives of millions and evoked responses from worship through hatred. It would require much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millennium, but in all of human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. That's quite a quote. There are more books written about him than any other figure in all of history. And our culture has come to the place where it realizes that it doesn't stand to just say he's a good moral teacher. That they actually now call him dangerous, oppressive. But the question becomes, what did Jesus say about himself? When Jesus was here, what did he say about who he was? What did he say about his identity? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 8. I'm going to look at a few verses in John 8, and then I'm going to jump into John 10. These verses will be on the screen, so your tablet, your phone, your actual physical Bible. John 8, beginning at verse 42. Jesus said to them, this is the Jewish people, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar, the father of lies. Because, yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Now, some people say when they're talking about Jesus that he was never controversial. I'm like, what? Or when he was with his opponents, he was never on the offensive. I mean, did you hear the language here? You belong to your father, the devil. Can you imagine saying to that someone this afternoon, like you're in a subway shop, you are engaging with someone in conversation, they're telling you something false about Jesus, and you look at them and say, you belong to your father, the devil. But that's what Jesus does, right here. Very forward, very direct. Notice what he says at the end of verse 47. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So a couple of things about this passage, right? The Jews, of course, always claimed Abraham was their father. Father Abraham. Abraham is our father. Here, Jesus is claiming that God is his father. That God is his father. That's something you should note. He takes it up a whole notch on them. You Jews claim Abraham's your father. I have come from God. God is my father. Note what else he says. That he comes from God and that God has sent him. He claims that he's from God and God has sent him. He then goes on to claim that they belong to the devil, their father. Now, we need to be careful as we kind of unpack this. Jesus is God incarnate come down. He's God the Son cloaking his deity with humanity. As we engage with people who don't understand who he is, our language should not be as direct as this. We don't have the right to say it the same way he did. I do think we should be saying to people, you've believed a lie. What you've believed isn't true. 
what you believed isn't accurate. Notice Jesus makes this claim in verse 46. If any of you have seen me sin, point it out. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Can any of you look at me and say, this is where I've sinned? He wants them to be able to say it because he knows they can't because he's never sinned. And then he says you can't hear God because you don't belong to him. Verse 48. The Jews answered, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not demon-possessed, Jesus said, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So just pause there. What do they do at first? They question his heritage. Well, you're a Samaritan. They don't want to even claim that he's a Jew. You're a Samaritan, right? You don't belong with us. And then what do they do? They question his authority. So first, his heritage. You're a Samaritan. Second, his authority. You're demon-possessed. This can't be from God. What you're saying is ludicrous. You must be demon-possessed. And then note what Jesus says. Verse 51. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. No one else in human history has made claims like this. Who else has said, you obey my word? You won't see death. They get it. They totally understand what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 52. At this they exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Did you catch that? They claim Abraham as father, right? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Is that not the great question of the ages? Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you think you are? They got it. I mean, I sometimes end up in debate, university campus and other places, and some will say to me, Jesus never claimed deity. I'm like, you've not read the Bible. Jesus clearly claimed deity. Very clearly. On a few occasions. Two of them we'll look at today. Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Jesus? What are you saying? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So note he comes back again to my father. The whole idea that you claim Abraham. I claim God the father. He says to them again, you don't know him. I do. You see that? You don't know him, but I know him. And then he says, what you're saying about God is not accurate. Verse 57. They totally get it. You're not yet 50 years old, they said, and yet you say you've seen Abraham. Well, that's not exactly what he said. 
He said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, at the thought of Messiah coming, at the thought of Christ coming, at the thought of God's promise through Abraham's line that one day God would save his people. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I am. Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. They all would have known what that meant. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. They all knew that only one being had ever claimed I am. And they knew it. They were the Jewish people. It was when Moses was being sent by God to free the Jewish people from the tyranny of the Egyptians. In that moment, as Moses is being sent, and he says finally to God, who, who do I say sent me? Who do I tell them is telling me to go? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. I am. Those very words mean that God exists in and of himself. He needs nothing. Think, think of what you need to survive. Oxygen, water, food, rest, companionship. I mean, there's so many things as human beings we need just to survive. What does God need to survive? Nothing. He exists in and of himself. I was uh, at Harbor Christian Fellowship Church in St. Catharines last week, a, a sister church, and uh, I spoke on, on who Christ is um, and what it means to follow him. And then they had a luncheon with a number of students, and they have a great ministry among a number of international students. And so there were Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists all in the room um, for this luncheon. And at the luncheon, the thing was Q&A. They could ask me any question they wanted. And that's, Amy said to me last, when, when I was going to this, is this okay? Yeah, all right, she doesn't know what I'm going to say. And, um, and when we were going, because when, when I was coming home last week, she said, well, when you come home from St. Catharines, we could finish painting the house in, some, in a part. I said, oh, I think I'll be tired. I'm speaking twice in the morning, and then I'm doing Q&A. And she goes, oh, that Q&A isn't work. I'm like, what? <laughs> Standing there in front of a group, they can ask you anything they want and answer. That's the hardest thing I do. And she goes, oh, it's fine. Um, thankfully, Saturday, she painted the house while I was away so that it, I didn't have to, Sunday afternoon. You know what I did last Sunday afternoon? I took a nap. But, but that said, one of the students said, I don't understand the Trinity. Can you explain the Trinity to me? Right? It's a difficult concept. But if there is a being who's able to speak the universe into existence, if he's powerful enough that when he speaks, things just show up, and powerful enough that by his might, he can sustain the universe, that being then is necessarily complex. Does that make sense? That being, to have that kind of power, is of necessity a complex being. And he's revealed himself as Father and Son and Spirit. And so Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. And they all got it. They all understood exactly what he was claiming. He's claiming to be God. And they picked up stones to stone him. Jump to John 10, verse 24. John 10, verse 24, just a couple of chapters over. This becomes pivotal when we look at the raising of Lazarus from, uh, to life again from the dead. John 10, verse 24. The Jews who were also there gathered around him saying, 
how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, didn't he just do that in John 8? Anyway, it's, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. Note, verse 28. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that? Really important. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now note verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. They're following his argument. And then what does he say? I and the Father are one. In that moment where he's claiming oneness with the Father, he's talking about the rights and prerogatives of deity, and he's saying, this is what I do, this is what the Father does. He offers this parallelism for them. They get it. They all get it. And then he says, the Father and I, we're one. That's an audacious claim, is it not? No one claims this. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, verse 31, 32. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Verse 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They got it. Jesus, first you claimed you are the great I am. Now you're claiming oneness with the Father. And they picked up stones to stone him again. We don't see that here. It's in, in, in chapter 11. It talks about how they wanted to kill him. Um, they got it. And so do many today. They know that if God exists, it means that we're not the top of the rung. If God exists, it means that there's a being we are accountable to. You see, if God doesn't exist, we're the top. There's nothing above us. It's the survival of the fittest. If God doesn't exist, there's no one above and beyond us. So then the best human beings get to run the planet and be accountable to no one. They get to create the rules. They get to create the parameters. They get to say what's fit. And if Jesus is not God, our gathering this morning and your life, if you're following him, is the biggest waste of time ever. I mean, when people say, I said this when I was here for your 50th anniversary looking at 1 Corinthians 15. When people say things like, well, I'd rather live as a Christian and die, even if God isn't there, than to live as some non-Christian and die and there be nothing. I'm like, what? Like, are you thinking straight? If God doesn't exist, all this time I've wasted, all this money I've wasted, if Jesus isn't God, I've, I've poured all this time and money and effort into something that isn't real. It's the greatest waste of time. And today, I want you to know that it's not. I'm going to walk you through a few more quotes in a minute. But I want you to know that what you have believed 
is true. I'm a Christian for two reasons. The first is this, God has saved me. The second is this, it's true. I said this a few weeks ago, but most of the world religions, Hinduism, Confucianism, right, Buddhism, they're isms. They're more philosophies, ideologies. Christianity is rooted in history. God entered into time and space. You take away the virgin birth, our faith falls apart. You take away the sinless life of Christ, our faith falls apart. You take away the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, our faith falls apart. You take away the resurrection, I'll get to that in a few weeks, our faith falls apart. Because God chose to root what he was doing to ground it in history so that you knew it was factual so that you knew it was real. He grounded what he was doing, not as an idea or an ideology, not as just a philosophy, but as historical fact. And Christianity has changed everything because Jesus has changed everything. But they want to eliminate God out of existence. There's basically four theories on the universe existence. The one is that nothing could make something, that if you give nothing as much time as you want, eventually something will come out of the nothing. That is one of the most preposterous things I've ever heard in my life. And you can read the greatest minds. These people I'm quoting, I've read much of their material. I'll get to Stephen Jay Gould in a minute. I, 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 Stephen Jay Gould was one of the paleontologists, I think, out of Harvard. Great mind. Read a number of his books. Not a believer, but very friendly to faith. And he would debate while he was alive. He passed away with cancer, but he would debate men like Dawkins on 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 the friendliness of faith and what that looked like. A great mind to read. Don't agree with him, obviously, on a bunch of stuff. Um, but, but people like that. You could read the greatest minds on the planet, and no one can explain to you how nothing could become something. They'll tell you they believe it, but they can't explain it. Second thing, right? People believe that matter has always existed, and matter could somehow turn from an inorganic state to an organic state. Again, no one can explain it. No one on the planet can explain that how matter could move from an inorganic state to an organic state. Third, third is now the multiverse theory that's become very popular. This is a very popular uh, uh, TED talk online from Jim Holt, philosopher. He says this, the resolution to the, so I gotta say this, in his TED talk, he first makes fun of people who believe in God, and then he makes fun of his colleagues who believe that nothing could make something, and then he makes fun of his colleagues who believe that matter can move from an inorganic state to an organic state on his own, and this is his conclusion. This, this is laughable. You just gotta listen to this. The resolution to the mystery of existence is that we exist in one of the possible generic realities because reality had to turn out some way. What? It could either turn out to be nothing or everything or something in between. So if it, meaning reality, has a special feature, being really eloquent or really full, well, that would require an explanation. But if reality is one of these random generic realities, there is no further explanation for it. That's what science is telling us. This is, did you catch it? This is what he says after making fun of all the theories. He says, I don't need to explain my theory because it's not really that complicated. There's just a lot of possible realities out there. Ours happens to have the one with life in it and it's the one we exist in. There, he says, I'm done. And everyone stood up and applauded. There's over 10 million views on, on, on his talk on it. And you're like, you just said air, nothing. And you just based your theory on Spider-Man. Like, come on, man, on some multiverse theory that started out of 
you know, DC Comics actually in the 50s out of the Flash in some multiverse thing that's become popular and somehow made its way into the academic world. And you're like, you read way too many comic books as a kid. But there's a fourth theory. A sovereign being, all-powerful, who's always existed, spoke the universe into existence by his sheer might and will. Listen to this. This is, uh, you've all know Harari from Noah Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Harari, sorry. Uh, where, where he's talking about where we are in his book. Yet, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it. This is 2017 he wrote this. But in the last few decades, we have managed to reign in famine, plague, and war. Right before COVID. Right before Russia, Ukraine. Right before Israel. Anyway, let's keep going. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved. We've got to put that in there just in case something happens, like COVID. But... They have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into very manageable challenges. What? We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, or war. And we usually succeed at doing it. I'm waiting for his retraction, just so you know. I was cycling to the gym. I know. I try hard. And, and I was coming back in the summer, and there was a production posted, and it said, I am enough. And I thought, what? And I went home and Googled it about someone who'd gone through a, just something horrific, and how they had made it through this horrific, right, event, circumstance. And their declaration is, I am enough. None of us are enough. The declaration of the universe is I'm not enough. But there is an I am, a great I am, who we can turn to at any time and trust, who is enough because of who he is. Because of who he is. Thomas Nagel says this, It isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So they feel the tension. Listen, this is the tension the world feels. This is Stephen Jay Gould, the paleontologist. Moreover, he says, the pathways that have led to our evolution, they're quirky, improbable, unrepeatable, utterly unpredictable. Human evolution is not random. It makes sense and can be explained after the fact. But wind back life's, uh, uh, I think that's tape. I've got that wrong there. To the dawn of time, and let it play again, and you will never get humans a second time. Now that sounds like a reliable theory, doesn't it? It's quirky, improvable, improbable, sorry, unrepeatable, and utterly unpredictable. And if you wound back life's tape to the dawn of time, it would never happen again. Listen to this. This is long. This is David Berlinski, secular agnostic. Has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here, not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow the existence of life, not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought, close enough? Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, 
and what is moral, not close enough? Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good, not even close to being close? Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences close enough? Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt dead on? That is a great quote. And we need to be engaging our young people who are on the front lines of this in their universities, their colleges, and their high schools, unless they be going to one of the Christian schools around us, who are being taught that they are fools for believing that God exists. They are not fools. Listen, this is Mark Lila. He's a professor. This is what he wrote as one of his young students, I think it was master level, could have been PhD, was coming to faith in Christ. He said this, I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was going to take. I wanted to help him see that there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude toward doctrine. I wanted to save him. That is what we're up against. The world out there believes that they need to save our children from us. Our grandchildren, I don't have them yet, just when I'm saying our, it's generic. Our grandchildren from us. They believe that they need to save our children and grandchildren from God. Just like we believe they need saving to God. And they have become bullish. They have become convinced that this is accurate. It's why you see the shifts you see in the world around us. But do not lose hope. The one in whom you believed is the great I am. The one in whom you believed is one with the Father. The one in whom you believed is God the Son, who spoke the universe into existence by his might and will and cloaked his deity with humanity to come and save us from our sin. That is in whom you believed. And you are not a fool for doing so. The universe cannot exist without him. And he revealed himself supremely by cloaking de de deity with humanity, coming and living among us, and showing us what God was like if God were living on the planet because God was actually here. It's good news. It's good news for everyone. Tim Keller says this, skeptic believe that any, excuse, any exclusive claim to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection in itself is a religious belief. What's he saying? Well, what's a religious belief? It's a whole idea of it's faith, not fact. He's saying that what they're espousing, what they're actually suggesting is faith. They can't prove it. And when they claim it's exclusive, but saying that there can't be exclusive claims, they don't even understand the contradiction with which they speak. This last quote, and then I'm just going to say a few words, from C.S. Lewis. I, I've never found a better quote as you think about the deity of Christ. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or a madman, or something else. I'm good friends with Dave Zietzma. 
Many of you know him. If Dave Zisma were to say to you, I'm a poached egg, I'm a poached egg, I'm a poached egg, I'm a poached egg, we would talk to Anna and then have Dave seen by some professionals and go visit him when he was there. Do you see what Lewis is saying? For Christ to be claiming deity, he either was so confused that he was a lunatic, he either was lying to everyone, or he's actually who he claims to be. You see, God exists. The universe cannot exist without him. He has revealed himself firstly in nature, through his word granted to us, and supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And you are not a fool for believing that Jesus is the Christ. You are not a fool for believing his claims to deity. The Spirit of God has moved in your heart and life to show you the truth about who Jesus is so that you can follow him. Is that not great news? He took us from our lostness to grant us life in himself, and God the Son did it. God the Son came down. God the Son showed up. And so you don't need to be afraid. You need to be wise. You need to be prayerful. But you do not need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of your neighbors when it comes to faith. You don't need to be afraid of your colleagues at work when it comes to faith. You don't need to be afraid of the people around you who don't know Christ when it comes to faith. Pray that God will open doors, and as God opened doors, declare who Jesus is to people around them, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Because no one can come to the Father except through him. Because he is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He is one with the Father, whom you're declaring is God the Son. Come down incarnate. Teach your children what it means. Let your grandchildren know that. But the reason in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul's talking about faith and evangelism, he says that I came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. He said, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words, but rather with demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Because here's what he knew. I can sit in an audience like last week and tackle a number of questions from people from other faiths and dialogue as best I can. People can even find the answers helpful, but those answers won't save them. If I'm able to argue them into the kingdom, someone else who's much smarter than I am would be able to come and argue them out of the kingdom. But when God's Spirit is at work in a believer's life, when God's Spirit is gripping someone's heart, when God's Spirit is opening their eyes to who Jesus is, when God's Spirit saves someone, you can never out-argue the work of His Spirit in someone's life because it is the work of the living God. And so we pray our faith is a rational faith, rooted in history, but it is a faith. And regardless of how I defend and explain the faith to my children, to neighbors, to friends, oh, I pray, God, would you open a door? Spirit of God, would you convict of sin? Lord, would you save? Lord, would you save? Who is he? He is Jesus, the Almighty One, the bread of life, the chief cornerstone. He is our deliverer, our good shepherd, our great high priest. He is Emmanuel, light of the world. He is our hope. 
He is our peace. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. He is the rock. He is the creator. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is mighty God. He is Messiah. He is Christ. He is God the Son. He is Jesus. And he came to seek and save the lost for anyone, anywhere, who believes. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're thankful that you came, that you chose to cloak your deity with humanity and come down. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you would send your son. Jesus, we thank you that you lived a sinless life, having been born of a virgin. You never in any way did anything wrong. And we thank you, we thank you, that you chose then to atone for our sin on a cross, that you took our sin upon yourself so that you could grant us your righteousness. For that we are thankful. We thank you that three days later, the power of the Father raised you to life again, and we thank you that you decide, you choose, you graciously love to grant us salvation. We thank you for salvation. God, for each of us here, we thank you for salvation. May we leave here with confidence in knowing that you are the great I am. You are God the Son. And may we prayerfully be considering how we can engage with neighbors and friends and family who don't know you. God, may you open doors into their lives and Spirit of God, may you grant us opportunity to share so that you can quicken the heart and you can save. We ask this in the powerful resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. And God's people said, Amen. He is our hope in life and death. Amen. What a great God. Listen to this from Revelation 5 as our benediction. Then I saw in the right hand, John says, of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. I looked to see the lion and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He went, he took the scroll, scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And he, when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, then 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne of the living creature and the elders and in a loud voice they cried, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, 
all of them saying to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures cried out, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord.